собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. In each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. Though the Soviet Union was often understood as a closed society, nearly 10 million foreigners visited it between 1956 and 1985. Many came from Western nations. The majority were Americans. Why would the Soviet Union open its doors to its capitalist enemies? First and foremost, the Soviet tourism industry was about profit, as foreign tourists brought hard currency. But there were political motivations as well. Soviet leaders wanted to showcase their country's achievements, to normalize its system, and convince Western tourists that the USSR was a modern, diverse, and peaceful nation. Hundreds of thousands of Americans who wanted to see the communist enemy for themselves followed suit. How did Americans experience their brief look behind the Iron Curtain? How did they evaluate the Soviet Union, and through it, themselves? How did Soviet authorities try to control the narrative and curtail potential infection from Americans while welcoming them? I turn to Andrew Jacobs for the story. Andrew Jacobs is a historian of American-Soviet relations, particularly cultural exchange during the Cold War. His dissertation, Contact and Control, Americans Visit the Soviet Union, 1956 to 1985, was completed at Indiana University in 2019. Here's Andrew Jacobs. All right, so my name is Andrew Jacobs. I completed my PhD in Russian history at Indiana University last November with a dissertation which mostly discussed experiences of certain American visitors to the Soviet Union in the Cold War period after the death of Stalin. And my advisor was Professor Hiro Kirimiya, who was the great, the great Japanese historian of Stalinism and of Ukraine. What got you interested in, in Americans going, American travel and tourism to the Soviet Union? Um, before I went into graduate school, I read, I was just reading various kind of classics and the field, and I read John Reed's 10 Days That Shook the, the World about his experiences in uh, Russia during the revolution. He was an American journalist and a radical journalist, and it was interesting to, to, to discover really how important he became and how much access he got as an American during this very important period and how valued he was to certain Bolsheviks. Lenin, Lenin even wrote the introduction to his to one of the editions of his book. He was so important, he's buried in the Kremlin, one of three Americans buried in the Kremlin. And then when I actually got into graduate school, I was assigned to write a book review of a book called The Forsaken by Tim Zuliadis. And that's a book which doesn't discuss, um, all, it discusses a lot more than just the famous 
travelers to the Soviet Union, like Paul Robeson or Mar Margaret Burke White or John Reed. It also discusses the ordinary Americans who went with their own hopes and dreams and often had shattered experiences there and often met tragic fates. So then I kept reading on and on, and I discovered there's tons of stuff on the 1920s and 1930s, the, the fellow traveler period, but there wasn't a whole lot written on the post fellow traveler period after the war and after Stalin, even though I suspected there were a lot more visitors during this time period. So then I found my idea for my dissertation and found the gap in the historical record and thought I could try and fill that to a degree. And it was a lot, I just found it interesting that it was always kind of ignored. Um, Paul Hollander's book, Political Pilgrims, which is a great book, which discusses extensively the visits of Americans in the 1920s and 1930s. It then doesn't discuss any any post-Stalin visitors and moves to Cuba and to, and to China and discusses those radical tourists and dismisses the visits to the Soviet Union as uninteresting or, or just like the past. And I thought, these are interesting visitors and somebody should write about them. So that was my, that's where I came in. That, that's really surprising that this is not gotten, or, it, you know, at least in his case was kind of dismissed as uninteresting because, you know, just looking at your, your footnotes, um, there are memoirs written of people who visited the Soviet Union, particularly journalists. Um, you, uh, you have um, uh, a lot of newspaper coverage about Americans going to the Soviet Union and particularly the, the kind of par paranoid concerns about, uh, you know, be them being influenced. Uh, you have congressional testimony about it. You have these reports that were written about it. So it's 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 really surprised, especially in the context of the Cold War, that that this this would be seen as an uninteresting topic. So why like why do you think so is it just uh i don't know just one of those things where people don't look too deeply into it to find what's interesting about it i think that's part of it it also became much more mass mass tourism of ordinary people going a lot of the focus in the 20s and 30s besides zoolitis is focused on focusing on celebrities or important writers things like that well in the 50s 60s 70s it's a lot of ordinary people who are going and trying to experience the soviet union even though a lot of local newspapers covered it because it was a big event if local residents came back from the Soviet Union. They often wanted their testimony, things like that, especially early on in the 50s and 60s. So so what, what about these travelers, these ordinary people, right, as opposed to the politicals, uh, ordinary people traveling that, that draws your interest? And what do you find fascinating about them? Good question. So... It was just um, the variety of variety of experiences they had and the reactions they took of the Soviet Union. It, they did not get a, a a red carpet tour of the Soviet Union. It was a it was a much more ordinary experience, but they were still seeing something they thought was extraordinary. So it, the celebrities are very important in my dissertation. I talk about Angela Davis, Muhammad Ali, Samantha Smith, people like that, but the but the much more common experience was from those ordinary tourists who signed up for the in-tourist um, package and went on the guided tours, ate at the same restaurants frequented by, by tourists, went to the same sites that all the other tourists went, and had that experience. And I, that was something new that was a little different than, from, than what occurred in the 1920s and 1930s when <clears throat> it, was, it was more worker delegations, it was more visits to factories, places like that.
So it's interesting to note the changes too between the 1920s and 1930s and the and the later visits. Uh, we'll talk about so you know uh, as you and and others have talked about the Soviet Union opens it up itself up to tourism in the post-Stalin years. Um, uh, to talk about the 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 reasons behind that and the, the within the context of the wider Cold War. What was the the intent of of opening the Soviet Union to foreign tourism and to Americans, the Cold War rival in particular? I think the main reason it happened was simply that Stalin died and there and a sea change was allowed to occur. So the xenophobia of the last years of Stalinism was replaced by a kind of cautious openness and, and optimism about, about engagement with foreigners, that they could be more than just enemies. They could also be friends and it could be won over. And you could want, and they could actually win over people by bringing them to the Soviet Union, having them see the Soviet Union with their own eyes. That they could convince them this wasn't a gray, dismal, drab land. It was a modern, industrialized, culturally advanced land where people were happy and they were proud of the Soviet Union and that it was also peaceful. So that, I think those are the two main reasons. And then also they saw opportunities. They realized in the 1950s that Yugoslavia had become very successful marketing, marketing itself to foreign visitors, especially Western Europeans, and they wanted to replicate that too. So there were commercial reasons. Tourism became a big business in, during this period, and they thought they could profit from it. That they, they could extract the hard currency necessary to continue their industrialization and just, just make money off tourists. The other thing is, of course, the political reasons, propaganda. They thought they could promote a better image of the Soviet Union to visitors around the world, that they could confirm the friendship of the friends, and they could win over people who were neutral about the Soviet Union, and they could even possibly temper the animosity of the Soviet Union's opponents if they just brought them to the country and showed them um, the Soviet Union for themselves. Was this, you know, the the ideological reasons, particularly in the context of the Cold War, to show, like, to trump up the Soviet, the achievements of the system, and to show that it's a viable alternative um, to, to capitalism, was it also just to normalize the Soviet Union in a, in a way? Because, you know, they were very aware of how the Soviet Union was depicted in, you know, the popular mind in the West and America in particular was in some ways just to kind of say, look, like we're different, but we also have this stuff just like you. Yeah, I definitely think that part of the opening itself up to tourists was definitely to normalize this image that tourism was very normal and no, very normal thing to do when the Soviet Union would accept them and they would have hotels and restaurants and shopping available to them like they would like would be available in any, in any other Western European country or any other major destination in the world, they could provide a quality tour, tourist experience like any other country too. So it was definitely to show that we are not um, this land populated by ardent communists or things like that, or, or political propagandists. These were normal people too, who had created a different system that was more beneficial to the population. Um, so talk about like what, what an American had to do to go to the Soviet Union. So you generally had to sign up with one of the tourist agencies in the Soviet Union. In tourist, which was the main um, foreign tourist agency, the general one, you had to sign up with them, um, book a flight. Normally through them, Aerofloat had direct flights from New York, I think starting in the late 60s, early 70s. 
and also you could fly to Copenhagen or Brussels or Helsinki and then on to Moscow. Or you could sign up if you were under, I think, under 25, you could sign up with Sputnik, which was the youth tourist agency, which was a cheaper alternative, which often didn't involve airplanes, but um, taking a train into the Soviet Union. That had a cheaper accommodations. That was They also had um, programs and itineraries designed for young people, visits to schools and pioneer palaces and promise discussions with young people, also visits to sporting camps, things like that. Or there's also the Union, or the, the Council of Unions in the Soviet Union also had a tourist program. They were supposed to bring over workers, but it was all, but because it was cheap, a lot of non-kind of blue-collar workers from the United States still found their way into that program because they wanted a cheaper, cheaper, um, cheaper plan, a cheaper trip. So that, and they would also well, a lot of times bring people to factories, things like that. But generally, you signed up with one of these agencies. They had um, set itineraries and also plans. So Soviet Union was supposedly a classless society, but there were different classes of tourists. And so the top class, I think, generally meant that you got your own tour guide, your own car, and your and a more luxurious accommodations, which mostly meant your own bathroom in your hotel. So basically, you normally had to go through the Soviet Union. Eventually, they had their own um American partners who would work with in tourists and help them develop itineraries um, for Americans who wanted to go to the Soviet Union. But generally, you always had to work through the Soviet Union. And what about visas? Would they also handle handle a visa to go to the Soviet Union? I think so. I'm not totally sure about that. So wh- why would Americans want to go to this place that, you know, in the, in the 50s and into the 60s and the 70s was the scary place, the enemy. Um, what, what are some of the reasons why Americans would, would spend their vacations touring the Soviet Union? So sometimes we have this misconception that there is this united consensus in the United States where everybody was opposed to the Soviet Union or everybody thought, it, thought of it as some evil place and they were disgusted by the thought of communism or the Soviet Union. I think in my own research I discovered the kind of the fairly obvious idea that a lot of Americans were deeply curious about the Soviet Union. All this kind of anti-Soviet discussion in the United States actually spurred more and more interest in the Soviet Union. And, what, and so when the Soviet Union opened itself up to American tourists again in 1956, a lot of them wanted that opportunity to go to the Soviet Union and to see it for themselves. They often mock the idea of life under communism, that kind of term, but a lot of Americans wanted to experience that or thought it existed. They wanted to then compare what they ha- what they saw in the Soviet Union with what they had back home in the United States. So a lot of it was curiosity. Then also, Soviet Union was marketed interestingly by the, the by tourist guidebooks. I can always remember voters declaring that it was not a day at the beach. It was an arduous and difficult experience, and that drew in a lot of people because the Soviet Union didn't really have beaches. There was Sochi just kind of modeled after either Miami or the French Riviera, which a few Americans went to, but not many. It wasn't known for shopping. The food wasn't always very popular. It was a drawback for many. So why did you go? Because really a lot of was the politics. You wanted to experience life in another country, and especially a country that was supposedly the opposite of the United States. Was it, was it a bit of this kind, a kind of like seeking adventure that's somewhat controversial 
you know, there's, a, you know, a bit of a taboo of, of flirting in the, you know, going to the enemy's territory for seeking some kind of adventure experience with that. Yeah, I think the idea of it being dangerous or frontier definitely drew people in and was exciting for many. A lot of people, a lot of the travelogues describe the border experience supposedly being kind of arduous and kind of menacing seeing the border guards, things like that. So the idea of like a omnipresent big brother or surveillance, that might have scared away some, but it also attracted some who wanted to live out their own kind of personal James Bond, not James Bond movie or spy novel or something like that. But that also drew a lot of people in the supposed danger of visiting such a, such a far off place and a place that was supposedly the main enemy of their home country. Yeah, I actually didn't even consider the fact that this is also the beginning of all of these uh, spy movies, James Bond movies, and this would be somewhat of a motivation of some sort of cosplay, of Cold Cold War cosplay in a way. Yeah, definitely. To cross the Iron Curtain, as commonly expressed, that kind of phrase. Yeah. Um, so what were the experience of, of American tourists like when they got to the Soviet Union? They, I mean, you meant, just mentioned the, the border experience, but... What other things that they note uh, about their their time there? They often noted the things that th- the things that they didn't like or the things that didn't compare well with with their home with the United States. They often criticized like the accommodations. Um, um, when the Soviet Union opened itself up and they eventually opened it itself up more and more, expanded the places you could visit. Tourists were visiting places like Armenia and Azerbaijan, and the accommodations there were not very good. And there was a lot of complaints about bad infrastructure, about cockroaches in hotel rooms, about the bad food, about surly waiters and waitresses, things like that. That Those things are often commented on. The black marketers are frequently commented on in travelogues about being, especially in Moscow and Leningrad, being rushed by Soviet young people asking to buy their jeans, the coat off their back, um, exchange money. Uh, records, things like that. Did that kind of um, give, I mean, I find it interesting, like the things that are mentioned uh, and they all seem to be all of these illicit type practices or or the the kind of the rougher edges or the, you know, about their experience there. Do you think that um, particularly the illicit stuff, the black market and, you know, people trying to buy stuff off, off of them, was this, do you think that this played in like what do you make what sense do you make of this like why are these things mentioned as opposed to others for some that that kind of experience with black marketers confirmed the idea of american superiority or the idea that the soviets wanted what the deep down the soviets wanted what the americans had their own kind of consumer choice their own kind of um, um, consumption items and they often commented on how badly dressed um, the soviet people were and that, that they weren't um, sophisticated. They didn't have the options that American men and women had. So it kind of made themselves feel better. What are some of the assumptions and impression assumptions that people went into the Soviet Union? And then what are some of the impressions they left with? And did they mostly like in, I mean, it's hard to generalize, I understand, but did they walk away with any different impressions than what they came in? Or did, were they mostly their impressions mostly confirmed? The assumptions that many had were included that it was a police state, that they'd be watched, that they wouldn't be able to meet with 
regular people on the street, that the stores would be empty, things like that. Some mostly negative assumptions about what the Soviet Union um, was and would be like. But that wasn't often confirmed, though, because it, most weren't harassed by the by the police. Most could meet with 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 seemingly regular people on the streets or in their hotels or in, or in arranged meetings. So this idea that you wouldn't be able to do things actually helped the Soviet Union because a lot of American tourists came back thinking it wasn't so bad as I thought it was, and a lot of the propaganda is wrong. You can talk to a regular Soviet man or woman. You can go to stores and buy things. They may may not have a lot of goods or a lot of choice, but they do have but they do have stores where you can buy plenty of stuff too. So that kind of worked in, somewhat in the Soviet Union's favor. That a lot of these kind of ideas about the Soviet Union were kind of so over the top that they proved wrong for many tourists. And where did people mostly travel in the Soviet Union? Like, what did they see? So they mostly visited two main mostly visited Moscow and Leningrad in the 1950s. In the early 60s, there were still quite a few visits when there were a smaller number of tourists and it wasn't as much of a mass character. They were still they were still visiting a lot of schools and factories, things that have often been mocked as really boring and tedious guided tours. Like I've arch- archival records of young people being sent to new construction sites and coke oven factories, like ridiculous things that no young person would want to go visit. Most of those things are kind of off the itineraries unless you requested them by the 1970s. 1970s, you have a lot of more regular tourism, kind of going to museums, historical sites, art museums. Um, the main thing in Moscow was the exhibition of national achievements, which was the large pavilion uh, with different sectors for each of the republics, showing all the achievements, educational, agricultural, economic, cultural, in Armenia, Ukraine, Estonia, Latvia, etc. So that was something that was on every itinerary. There's also um, oftentimes discussion sections or, or roundtable discussions where the tourists could go meet with average Soviet people, supposedly, normally at the House of Friendship, which were established in most of the major cities. In the late 1960s and 70s, a lot of the tourists started um, being able to visit elsewhere, Kiev, Estonia, Armenia, places like that. And there's also the rise of ethnic tourism. So it's really interesting that a lot of the the local and tourist offices asked the center in Moscow that they be allowed to bring tourists to kind of local cultural shows and show off their own kind of local national culture rather than just emphasizing the Soviet Union. And that was very popular with, with Americans because a lot of them who did visit the Soviet Union were of people who descended from the former Russian Empire. There are a lot of Estonian Americans who went, Ukrainian Americans who went, and they valued and wanted these kinds of tours. Um, do you have a sense of, of how many Americans went there a year? So it started in the a few thousand in the 1950s, and by the, by the early 1970s, it was about 70,000. And then it was over 100,000, I believe, by 1980, with, with uh, and tourist planning for to greatly increase that. So the flow was ever increasing. There was, sometimes it stabilized or flattened because of um, geopolitical events. The Prague Spring was a notable one. The Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1980, where it kind of slowed briefly um, the tourist flow, but it never stopped. And it's also interesting that Americans were the largest group of uh, Western tourists outside of East Germans and Finns who are much closer to the Soviet Union. So the Americans outnumbered Brit- the British, uh, Italians, French. So 
they visited rather huge numbers. Yeah, that's I mean, that's really, really quite surprising. Now, you know, the, the Soviet the Soviet government, of course, has this very somewhat ambiguous view of all of this, because on the one hand, as you said, they want tourism, they want the opportunity, they want to showcase the, the society and their achievements, etc. But on the other hand, they're highly suspicious of, of Americans, and they, they erect all sorts of, you know, methods with in tourist guides and the itinerary and surveillance to kind of to control, uh, you know, to to prevent, for lack of a better term, infection from these American these tourists. So, um, what what kind of things were this were this was the Soviet government afraid of and concerned about um, with American tourists coming to the Soviet Union? So Americans are probably the most dangerous of foreign tourists, and they were kind of con- conceived in the the reports as people who were the most interested in propagandizing in the Soviet Union and of kind of arguing with their guides and trying to meet with uh, Soviet people and convince them about the superiority of the American way of life and also to bring over goods and convince them that life was much better in the United States. They feared that greatly. So I think, and um, also just the, the large numbers of American visitors, it was kind of overwhelming. The suspicion that the Soviet government had towards Americans in promoting, you know, the American way of life and things like this and propagandizing, did they also see them, like, how did they view these tourists? Were they just, did they understand that they were regular people or did they see a lot of them as just an arm of the American, you know, secret service? They thought the United States was sending a number of fake tourists to the Soviet Union who would pose as tourists, would join kind of regular tourist groups who would then propagandize and then cause trouble and bring over illicit materials or banned books like Dr. Zhivago or materials that were anti-Soviet and then distribute them among the Soviet population. So tourism, they thought, was a cover for CIA activities. And this was especially true where they were especially suspicious of young men, and especially young men who could speak Russian. That was really, really suspicious. And anybody who wanted to leave leave the leave, leave the guided tours and wander off on their own, that was deep, they're deeply suspicious of that kind of activity. Nineteen sixty, there were a number of incident, incidents in which several young American men in their twenties, normally who had recently graduated from college, who were arrested. A few were put on show trials. This was shortly after the Gary Powers U two incident, and they were busted for taking photographs of bridges taking too many photographs, um, talking with the Soviet people, passing out old magazines like Newsweek or Time. And they were, they deported several of these people, or several of these young men. One of them, or a couple of them were put on trial, but then they were quickly released and deported back to the United States to make an example of them, to show that American tourists weren't, all, didn't, weren't always friendly, that some of them were duplicitous. This was a message to the Soviet people. And you also note, too, the State Department was issuing, by the mid-60s, the State Department was issuing kind of lists of do's and don'ts. So where what was the, from from the State Department side, because you do have a lot of great, great um, archival work from, from the American government. How did the American government view these tourists? So they, they encouraged tourism, especially in the 1960s. By the 19, there was some hesitance about in the 1950s when it first started, they thought that Americans would be easily duped and would come back with overly rosy idea of the Soviet Union as, as a utopia or some kind of paradise, that they would be fooled. That almost never happened at all with almost anybody. 
So there was some hesitance about it in the beginning, but in the 1960s, they definitely encouraged it and saw American tourists as great ambassadors for the United States and the American way of life, just the way they dressed, the way they acted. Um, they, they viewed them as kind of cosmopolitan, that they could win over the Soviet people with their interest in just in the Soviet Union. And they also did, did see tourists as, as a way to extract information, too, and in the late 1950s, there was a, something called Operation Lincoln, where I believe the CIA briefed tourists before they went to the Soviet Union and then debriefed them afterwards about what they saw. And they gave them certain tasks to look at factories, to take photographs. Eventually, this was curtailed because the Soviet Union caught on to it and then banned a whole bunch of things like taking photographs of bridges or airports or certain factories. Too. So they so they did, did see it as valuable, but they also found the behavior of many American tourists totally embarrassing. Americans kept getting in trouble, especially with black market activities and also ruble exchanges. You couldn't exchange rubles on the street. You had to do it formally, even though the exchanger was much, much better on the street, I believe. And Americans kept getting in trouble for these things, and it was deeply embarrassing to the American embassy. The thing was, though, that the Soviet Union often didn't prosecute this. They often just swept it under the rug. They deported some people, but it, there was a Soviet official who told one of the American higher-ups at the embassy that the crimes committed by American tourists was far greater than the Americans knew about, but they kept sweeping it under the rug because they needed the tourists to keep coming because they were making so much money off of them. So they really overlooked a lot of things. Yeah, they. I mean, it seems like the, their main thing to do is just send telegrams complaining you know, about American behavior, but not actually doing much in terms of action on it. Yeah, there are only a few notable instances in which they really prosecute somebody. They sent somebody to jail for three years for black market exchanges. They would crack down more on border violations. There's one notable instance, a man named, a young man named Nukem Mott, who crossed the Soviet border from Norway into the Soviet Union in the late 1960s. He was arrested. He was sent to jail for 18 months, but on the on the trip there in a sealed railway car, he killed himself with a, with a hidden razor blade, and that caused a lot of tension in American-Soviet relations. So they would crack down on certain things, but they, but eventually, especially when there's so many tourists coming in, they, they couldn't crack down on everything, especially by the 1970s. Now, you know, the vast majority of American citizens had no interactions with the with the KGB or any kind of police organs in terms of their surveillance. But that doesn't necessarily mean that um, they weren't, you know, regulated, right? Um, you know, you, you your dissertation's title itself, it talks about control. Thinking about surveillance more broadly, what types of surveillance were American visitors subject to? So they were normally always with a guide who watched very closely over them. And they're always kept normally very busy on these guided tours. So the, the, one of the major complaints is that they had no free time, that they were always busy with three, four, five activities a day on these tours led by a tourist or Sputnik. So there was a lack of free time. There was a, there was a little option where you could eat often. You had to go to specific restaurants or often eat, eat at the hotel. There wasn't a lot of opportunity to go out on the street and try and converse with the Soviet people. So it's mostly on restrictions on what they weren't allowed to do rather than rather than the KGB following them around or kind of surveilling them secretly. Yeah, and we do know that in-tourist guides had to write general reports to, to KGB people about, you know, impressions that they have or, or things that they, they noticed. 
Um, now, I don't know if you can speak to any of those. Like the what the role, like the guide is an interesting thing because on the one hand, you have these tour guides and most of them are young. They're like in their 20s. Most of them are female uh, and they're in charge of, you know, shuttling around or at least, uh, you know, with these tour groups. And then they have this extra task of basically being, you know, the warriors on the ideological front. I think this is how Alex Hazanov put it. Um, so uh, what what can you say about the guides and, and their attitudes toward uh, toward American visitors? I thought going into this project project and going into the research that a lot of the tourists wouldn't like their guides or would constantly be fighting with them or something like that or getting in arguments with them. And sometimes that happened and sometimes there were complaints about kind of the quality of the guide, but it appears to me that most tourists like their guide. There's a lot of letters back and forth between um, the tourists and the guides at later points. Um, and there's a lot of compliments being sent back by the tourists to and tourist higher-ups and to the Friendship Society about how great their guide was and wanting contact information or to send them stuff. And it was a very difficult job for these guides. They were young. They were mostly trained in foreign languages. They came from the foreign language school. And they also had to write these lengthy reports, often profiling kind of the individuals who were in their groups and discussing them and kind of highlighting who might possibly be important to future visits, which happened occasionally if somebody kind of prominent was a part in one of these tour, tour guides. They also had to kind of deal with all these different requests um, and kind of tours who wanted to, to go off the guided tour and do things that weren't allowed. And they, they also always had to try and pre present the Soviet Union in the best possible light, which was difficult when the accommodations weren't great when the food wasn't great. And sometimes you can read in these reports the kind of the embarrassment of the guides as they report back to their tourist bosses about broken doors or no elevators or the lack of hot water or the tourists being besieged by black marketers. You can feel their embarrassment and sometimes they actually even say in these reports, you cannot bring Western tourists to this to this or that site because it's not up to our stand because it's not up to their standards. And it's embarrassing to us. I don't know if you have any insight when when Americans and Soviet people, whether they're guides or whoever, would get into these more political discussions. You know, what were some of the topics and and particularly about the, the race issue in, in the Vietnam War? So the Soviets did think that one, one other benefit of bringing tourists over is that they could try and gauge American public opinion. So they often brought up kind of hot button topics like Vietnam in the 60s and 70s or the racial issues in the United States. They also thought those were winning issues for their side in these discussion groups. And they could kind of put away, put aside any criticism of the Soviet Union by bringing up Vietnam or kind of racism in the United States. So it was those two things to try and engage popular opinion and learn about American perspective on various issues and also kind of rebut any possible criticism of the Soviet Union. But they definitely did like to discuss those those topics. And race in particular was always brought up. There's a lot of tours, or there's one particular tourist who recalled in her memoir visiting the Soviet Union in the early 1950s that she's asked almost randomly, have you ever seen, seen, a, seen a lynching? which is just a kind of a weird question to ask, but it was so, the idea of American, American lynchings was so prominent in the Soviet Union that it's just an obvious question for them, supposedly. Some tours definitely did 
take seriously the idea that they were ambassadors for the United States and they did need to put kind of the country's best foot forward and would defend their country. But a lot of the tourists who went to the Soviet Union, especially who came from the Friendship Society, the National Council for American-Soviet Friendship, which sent over thousands of tourists, they were all left-wing. They would nod along to all the Soviet criticism of Vietnam and of American racism. So there was, so there was a difference, and a lot, some wouldn't defend the United States either. They would just see it as an awkward topic and let it pass. Famously, uh, Angela Davis visits the USSR in 1972, and, and, and as you know, and, and many others, that um, this sojourner of African Americans to the Soviet Union you know, begins in the early 20s and throughout. Um, talk about her experience in the Soviet Union and, and within this larger context of Soviet anti-racism and anti-colonialism. So she visits the Soviet Union in 1972, and what I would say is her kind of worldwide victory tour. She was um, only, she was just off being acquitted from on murder charges in California. A gun that she, or several guns that she owned, or registered to her, were used in a courthouse shooting in California, 1970, that left four people dead. There was a long manhunt. Eventually, she was apprehended and charged with murder, and she was found not guilty, surprisingly. And there was a huge solidarity campaign launched on her behalf in the United States, but also internationally. And she was particularly popular in the Soviet Union because she was a communist. And the, the solidarity campaign in the United States was led mostly by the Communist Party of the United States, of which she was a member and would later run as, a, as their vice presidential candidate, I think, twice. So she became very popular in the Soviet Union because she was a communist, and even more popular because she identified with the Soviet Union. She's different or unique among 60s radicals because her bright shining star was not Cuba, wasn't Maoist China, wasn't North Korea, or, or North Vietnam, or Algeria, or one of these post-colonial states. Her paradise, her utopia, was always the Soviet Union. So that made her very popular in the Soviet Union, and she also credited the Soviet Union and the work of communists around the world with saving her life and, and gaining her freedom in 1972. So she visits as a guest of honor. She's afforded almost every kind of honor available to, to a foreign guest, except a meeting with Brezhnev. That didn't happen, mostly because 1972, another famous American visited, Richard Nixon, the Nixon-Brezhnev summit. So that would have been a little bit too much for Brezhnev, who was working towards detente with Nixon. So she visits in 1972. She's made an honorary professor at, I believe, Moscow State University. She visits factories, schools. She has huge audiences who praise her and talk about her bravery and her courage. And she comes to the Soviet Union not as, as African Americans often did in the 1920s and 1930s, as kind of beleaguered victims of American racism, or as kind of wandering intellectuals interested in learning about the Soviet Union. She comes to the Soviet Union in 1972 as almost an American Ho Chi Minh, as a liberate, national liberation figure, who is kind of seen as someone in the future who will liberate the United States' working class and bring revolution to the United States. It's it's a, it's a different kind of third-worldized figure, even though she's from the United States. So she's an honored guest. She visits a large swath of the Soviet Union. Probably the most impactful is her visit to Uzbekistan, which was often the most impactful place for America, for African-American visitors. Langston Hughes visited there, Paul Robeson. And she discovered in the Soviet Union 
Also, like Muhammad Ali, a few years later, that racism didn't exist in the Soviet Union because she found a country that was fully integrated and every opportunity was available to every citizen, no matter their ethnicity or race or religion. Do you know, do you, I don't know if you, you tried to approach her for an interview or to talk to her about, I, I'm, I, maybe you know, or I'm, I'm wondering about what her impressions are now of that trip when she reflects back on it. Do you have any idea? Well, it's, well, her communist past and her kind of um, pro, previous pro-Soviet outlook has kind of haunted her. She was given a civil rights award, I believe, last year in Alabama, and then it was rescinded because of some of the things she said, I think, about the Soviet Union and also maybe about Palestine and Israel. And then eventually they gave it back to her. But that kind of stuff has haunted her for many years. But I don't think she's made any apologies. She was America's most famous communist in the 70s and 80s. She eventually leaves the party in, I think, 1991 when the Soviet Union is collapsing. But I, I don't think she really also doesn't really discuss it either. Her memoir, she, she hasn't written one since the 1970s, and that one cut off right at the end of her trial, I believe. So it's not a, something she doesn't want it. I don't think she really wants to discuss this period. And also, some one of the other problems is that she was a dissident and a political prisoner visiting the Soviet Union, and a number of Soviet political prisoners and also political prisoners in Eastern Europe made direct appeals to her, asking her to advocate on their behalf, and she refused. And she didn't, or at least didn't publicly. And that's also caused kind of issues with her reputation. Yeah, I would... <laughs> I would imagine. Um, and in terms of like the, the, the archival record on her visit, like what are the, some of the things the Soviets were interested in and in kind of shuttling her around? So she actually visit, visits a lot of the kind of normal sites. So Samantha Smith, who was a young American girl who visited the Soviet Union about a decade later, they, they all went to basically the same sites, sites devoted to World War II, the Yuri Gagarin House Museum, for example, um, Moscow State University, but I think Uzbekistan was probably the most important thing. Just to see um, the Soviet Union as a place that celebrated cultural diversity and ethnic diversity, and then one that was integrated. I think that's what they wanted to promote to her and also to all African-American visitors. The Soviet Union was not a racist country. It did not was not a prejudiced country. And so it celebrated its diversity and promoted kind of all the peoples of of the country, ethnic minorities, and people of, of minority religions. And this was occurring at the same time that there was so much criticism of the Soviet Union for state-sponsored anti-Semitism. So bringing over Angela Davis and other African Americans could, and having them see the Soviet Union as a diverse country, as one that celebrated its diversity, one that was integrated, would help undercut the criticism of the country as racist, as prejudiced, as anti-Semitic. And I, I actually didn't know that Ali went to the Soviet Union. What about Muhammad Ali's trip? When did he go? So I believe he visited in 1978. I believe he asked, if I found the right archival um, record, I believe it was his request to go visit the Soviet Union, and the Soviets paid for it. And they also brought over his whole entourage, which was rather large. And he visits, um, Uzbek again, Uzbekistan in another major visit. He, he recalled in... Um, interviews shortly after that the Soviet people didn't know him as an athlete really they knew him as an opponent of the Vietnam War and uh, and a convert to, Muslim, to Islam which is interesting although his boxing sessions he sparred with some Soviet boxers 
were very well attended. He was often mobbed in public. But he also came away, similar to Angela Davis, also saying that, that no racism existed in the Soviet Union. I think part of the, part of the celebrity, the slip for the celebrities he went, Billy Graham is also another interesting one, is that they were given these kind of red carpet tours, um, chauffeured around the country, and they, they didn't feel like they could criticize the criticize the Soviet Union. They couldn't betray the kindness that was shown to them. And if they said anything bad, they weren't going to be invited back. So that was always kind of something hanging in the back of their heads. that They wanted to be nice because they were shown that, you know, they'd given this free tour and shown around so nicely and warmly received. All these celebrities were flattered to an enormous degree. Davis, Muhammad Ali, Billy Graham. They couldn't betray the Soviet Union by bringing up the, the sore points. So you mentioned Samantha Smith, um, and and so she she goes to the she and her family because how old is she again? I believe she was thirteen. Thirteen years old. She goes with her and her family in nineteen eighty three. So what's the story around that? So in nineteen eighty two, she wrote a letter to Riandropov, as a short letter asking him asking him not to um, make war with the United States. This letter is ignored until about. Six months later, when one line of it is published in Pravda in a much larger article about um, letters from foreigners to the Soviet Union, and the and the the excerpt in it is very curt, and it, the author of that Pravda article mocks her because she asked about the Soviet Union possibly making war with the United States, and the author says the Soviet Union would never make war with anybody. But then suddenly, Andropov writes his own letter to Samantha. He invites her and her parents to the Soviet Union, where she can discover that the Soviet Union is a totally peaceful country. And so she visits in a much celebrated um, tour. She visits Moscow and Leningrad and then Artek, the Young Pioneer Camp in Crimea on the Black Sea, which is often still associated with her to this day. And she visits during a major Soviet peace campaign, which is basically inaugurated in 1982-1983 in opposition to Ronald Reagan's rhetoric. Soviet Union, for him, was the evil empire. He initiated a massive um, military uh, spending increase. The Star Wars, or SDI, was was inaugurated by him, or he tried to start it. And then NATO was also trying to put new missiles in West Germany. And there was this big campaign, peace campaign, inaugurated in the Soviet Union in opposition to all this. And they drew in foreigners oftentimes in these peace campaigns. And Samantha was... One of the foreigners who was drawn in in 1983 to oppose the to oppose this for an international audience, and also to highlight how peaceful the Soviet Union was, and also to generate interest among the Soviet youth for this peace campaign by drawing in a young foreigner. Is she still alive? No, she died a few years later in a plane crash. Oh boy. Okay, so we don't know exactly how she reflects on that that trip. Wow. Um, you know, you have uh, in the in beginning in the 60s, but more so in the 70s, you have, um, you know, some of the people that we, we know in in Russian studies are going to the Soviet Union and getting a chance to either do language acquisition or even do research. Uh, what was the what was the experience like for for graduate students and other you know people in academia going to the Soviet Union? So in the late 1950s, they set up a, a graduate student exchange between the Soviet Union and the United States in which the, they would suppose they tried to send an equal number of students back and forth to study in American universities normally for about six months to a year. 
And this is set up in the late 1950s. It begins to flourish more in the 1960s and have more regular plan or formula. And then it grows much larger in the 70s and 80s. But in the 60s, it's interesting because it was so contentious, especially when Robert Burns, the former professor at Indiana University, he oversaw a lot of expulsions and a lot of drama in that program in which a number of graduate students, including very famous ones, were expelled from the Soviet Union, supposedly for espionage, for breaking rules. And there was, there was just a lot of contentiousness around the program, also about who the Soviets were sending to the United States. Soviets were mostly sending scientists, engineers, mathematicians, and while the United States was mostly sending to the Soviet Union historians, political scientists, mostly because in the United States... Historians were in charge of the program, and they were sending their own people. And the Soviets, they wanted to extract from the United States technology, things like that. Do you think, do you have a sense that this experience, um, you know, the, in, for Russian studies, for example, for a long time until this point, those people who are part of the beginnings of Russian studies in the United States, there tend to be two groups. They're either, you know, people who are emigres, or they're people who are Americans and come up and, and but going to the Soviet Union and doing research and seeing the Soviet Union is quite rare uh, until, you know, you have these exchanges, it becomes a bit more common. Do you think that this had an impact on the shaping of Russian studies by the 70s and into the 80s? That this personal experience that people like, I don't know, Sheila Fitzpatrick had or in others? I definitely think so. It definitely provided another perspective. I think there's a lot of, there's the idea that the totalitarian model or the idea of the Soviet Union as a totalitarian state fell apart because historians went into the archives and they found lots of material that suggested otherwise, that power did not all come from the Kremlin, that the average people had um, different ways of negotiating power and they, they disagreed with um, authorities, things like that. But I think a lot of the totalitarian model fell apart because these Future historians of the Soviet Union went to the Soviet Union and discovered it was a very chaotic place. The Soviet um, authorities couldn't even control uh, how their own citizens from taking all, from taking or stealing all the toilet paper in the bathrooms. It's like how could they then control you know the activities of everybody in the country? They can't control a small thing like that. They realized that the Soviet people had tons you know, were a very diverse lot with all different political viewpoints. They met the kind of propaganda, propagandistic people who just spouted propaganda. They also met dissidents, and they met a whole lot of people who were in between that. So they met all different kinds of Soviet citizens who didn't fit into neat, neat boxes. Um, and finally, so what? why is this tourism and, and cultural exchange and intellectual exchange important like what role does it play do you think in in the wider cold war tourism was one part of the cultural cold war in which um the soviet union and the united states could promote it, the preferred image of their country for the soviet union this was the image of the soviet union as a peaceful harmonious diverse country that was modern that was industrialized that was culturally sophisticated and through tourism by bringing over americans they could do that anything you'd like to add that you didn't get a chance to mention a few things i think the i think the soviet union is perhaps the only country that was ever de described both as drab and exciting drab signified the kind of the idea that the soviet union was gray that it was dull that the people were robotic that they were all spotting propaganda 
but it was also exciting in the sense that it was Cold War, that people were crossing the Iron Curtain, and they were getting to experience a different a, a culture they thought would be totally different and opposite from what they knew back home. So that drew people in. And I think just the way the Soviet Union was marketed as this strange place and this and this dangerous place drew, drew a lot of people in when most people think it wouldn't. And I think the other thing I want to also point out is that most people actually enjoyed their their time in the Soviet Union. I don't want to just emphasize kind of the bad food or the the, the ugly hotel rooms or the overly overly filled uh, itineraries, which tourists had to go on visiting collective farms and factories, things like that. Most tourists actually greatly enjoyed their Soviet experience because of those things relating to politics, that they got to cross the Iron Curtain, that they got to experience life under communism and visit a, visit a country they thought was going to be very different from their own. And then they were often excited when they went to the Soviet Union and met people who they thought were just like them. So the, one of the main goals for American tourists was to meet people, and they were almost overwhelmingly, they always felt like they met people just like them. That was Andrew Jacobs. Andrew Jacobs is a historian of American-Soviet relations, particularly cultural exchange during the Cold War. His dissertation, Contact and Control, Americans Visit the Soviet Union, 1956 to 1985, was completed at Indiana University in 2019. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. As always, I want to thank my high excellencies, high wellborns and noblenesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. <laughs>